Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, your mercy that is new for us every morning. We ask, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds to you now. We pray that you would open your word to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. What is freedom? What would freedom actually look like for you? Have you ever thought about that? Oftentimes when we think of freedom, we think uh, in terms of political freedom, right? Or socioeconomic freedom. Um, We're good Americans after all, and freedom is our bread and butter. We practically invented it. At least you would think that. Uh, It's an election year, so we love to uh, pat ourselves on the back for the freedom that we have uh, brought to the world. And, um, but when I, when I hear, hear the word freedom, uh, the first thing that usually pops into my head is Scotland, of course, uh, the movie Braveheart. Uh, is one of my top five favorite movies of all time. Uh, William Wallace fighting for freedom, the freedom of his fellow Scotsmen, right? And then there's a great scene when he cries out with his dying breath, freedom. It's truly inspirational, and there's certainly something to this kind of freedom, this political freedom or this socioeconomic freedom. Um, But perhaps when you think of freedom, you think of it more on a personal level. You may think of the freedom to choose, right, to to make your own choices, like a buffet at, uh, you know, a diner. (laughs) There's freedom. Uh, But this idea of independence, you know, it's... It's partly why we all freak out a little bit when we go off to college. If you remember those days, and if you're looking ahead to those days, I'll tell you, you're going to freak out a little bit. And it's because you get to get out of your parents' house, and you finally don't have anyone telling you what to do, right? We're beginning to experience what it means to be an adult. We set the rules. We're independent until the bank account gets below 50 bucks. And then we're on the phone reminding mom and dad how much they mean to us, and we love them, and please put money in the bank. Uh, But we often think that independence equates freedom in our society. When we think about freedom, uh, if we find any lack, if we find any sense of a lack of freedom in our lives, we tend to pinpoint that onto a particular obstacle whatever it may be. We we tend to find something in our life that if that one thing were different, then we'd be okay. Then we'd be free. Then things would start to finally go our way, right? And for me, it is usually the lack of wealth, just like the college kid. That hasn't changed much. You know, I think if I just had more money, then I'd be able to do whatever I want, you know? Uh, If I just would finally win the lottery, even though I'd never buy a ticket, if God just somehow make that happen, that would be awesome. Um, There's a joke about this, I'm sure you've heard. People say money can't buy you happiness. I'd just like to find that out for myself. (laughs) That's one of the things that we we often think. We too often we operate under this lie. And the truth is I've read the stats. You've probably heard the stories. People who do win the lottery, they're often very sad stories uh, where they usually end up worse off than they were before. They're often mired in debt after a period of time, after, getting, after winning the lottery. Their relationships break apart, and they usually end up alone, worse off than they were when they were poor, or at least poorer. You know, money is not the key to my freedom, even if I think it is. So then what is it? What is freedom? And what is the key to it? 
We like to describe ourselves as having free will. That's one of the things we tend to say. I'm sure you've heard it before. Maybe you've even said it before. And it goes back to that idea of independence. The idea of freedom is that we are in this neutral position. We're neutral. where We get to choose either the good or the bad. This way or that. It's our choice. The problem is that Scripture disagrees. Scripture says that we are not neutral. We are bound. We're actually predisposed, Scripture says, to choosing things that are not good for us. In fact, it's one of the funny things about whenever we start talking about the idea of free will. Uh, we're often defending, when we start talking about our free will, especially in theological conversations, we're often defending our right and freedom to reject God. That's usually what we are doing, if you think about the conversation. We get very squeamish about the idea of God being truly sovereign, God being truly in control. That scares us. We think that if he's in complete control, then we don't have any freedom to choose. You know, we're just robots or we're puppets or something like that. So we say things like, God would never violate our free will. He wants me to choose him freely. This is kind of the, the way the thinking goes. And that works if you think we're neutral. If you think we're neutral, then it works to say that we can choose God. But, as I said, Scripture won't let you stay there. I didn't make this up, so you can be mad at me, but, you know, it's really the Bible. <laughs> Scripture won't let you stay there. It says that we're not neutral. David wrote about it a couple times in the Psalms, where he said, They have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Paul famously quotes this in Romans 3 when he is describing our situation as people. And then there's this annoying thing that Jesus said very clearly in John 5. You did not choose me. I chose you. God being all-powerful is bad news to us when we think that our freedom is the power of our choice. Okay? It sounds like bad news. But it is incredibly good news to people who realize that they are actually stuck and that they cannot choose the good that they want. They know what it is, and they still find themselves doing the thing they don't want to do. I don't know if that describes you at all. But when you know your capacity for sin, when you know what you're actually capable of, then you want to hear about somebody who can overpower your choices. You want to hear about somebody who can save you from yourself. I know I do. It's no mistake that Jesus stood up centuries ago, millennia ago, in the synagogue that day, and searched through Isaiah. It was handed the scroll of Isaiah, which would have been a real big scroll. And he took the time to search through that thing and get to chapter 61, which it wouldn't have had chapters, but he would have just gone through the whole thing and uh, found the section that he wanted to get into. He wanted everyone to hear why he had come. He did not come to try to convince neutral people to choose him. He was not like our political candidates today that are, you know, campaigning, they're out there presenting on their platform, you know, they're giving you their argument, trying to, you know, get you to vote for them, that they're going to bring about the right change that you want. That's not what Jesus did. He came to find lost people. He came to heal hurting people. He came to raise dead people. 
Listen to what he says. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. None of the things he just described there, none of those people groups sound like independent, neutral people to me. Right? Can you find yourselves anywhere in there? The poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed... If you can't identify with any of those, then what Jesus says here about himself and his mission will probably just seem like overkill. You know, he's overdoing it. You know, if you think that what, if what you really need is just political freedom or socioeconomic freedom, uh, you know, equality, or you just need a little help to stay on the right track to make good choices because you're basically a good person with a free will, if that's where you think you are, then all that Jesus is going to really do here is make you angry. And that's what happened with his audience that day. They initially thought that Jesus sounded good. The, the habit was, if you stood up to read, if you were a teacher and you got up in the synagogue and somebody gave you the scroll and you read, then you would sit down. So when, they, when they're all, all their eyes are fixed on Jesus, it's because when you sat down, that's when you would actually preach. You'd read what you wanted to talk about, and then you'd preach. And so Jesus sat, and they're all watching him. What's he going to say? And what does he say? These words are fulfilled in your hearing today. That's his sermon. It's the best sermon ever. Uh, nobody can top it. Short and sweet and true. So they initially thought this sounded good. They were looking for the Messiah, after all, right? They were good Jews. They're worshiping. This person that God had promised by, you know, to come and deliver his people, to bring them freedom, that's what they were waiting for. But of course, they had the same problem that we began with, the same question, what is freedom? They thought freedom meant having Israel restored to greatness, you know, uh, being liberated from their Roman oppressors, that God was going to make them the big dog in their region again, the return to the glory days of David and Solomon. You know, Kate said this brilliantly a couple weeks ago, make Israel great again. <laughs> That's what they thought Jesus was wearing his red hat. But Jesus came to give them another kind of freedom. True freedom. To liberate them from their ultimate oppressors. Okay? It's not political, not economic, not social. He wanted to liberate them from their ultimate oppressors of sin, death, and the devil. The forces that they were really captive to. But they were not looking for that. That's not the kind of freedom they were looking for. They didn't think that was their real problem. And we can see their skepticism. It pops up really fast. After Jesus says, all this has been filled in your hearing, right after it says they, they were marveling at his gracious words, then they ask the same question that Satan asked Jesus last week when we were looking at the temptation. The same question, just in different form. Remember, Jesus had just heard from God in heaven, and everybody had heard at his baptism, you are my son, with whom I'm well pleased. And then he's driven out into the wilderness by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and what does Satan say to him right off the bat? If you are the son of God, prove it. Turn these stones into bread. That's what he says. So he questions it right away, who his identity is. He doubts him. 
And the audience here says the same thing, just a different way. They say, wait a second, isn't this Joseph's son? We know this guy. You know, Jesus lived like two houses down from me. He's sitting up here saying that he's the guy who's going to do what Isaiah prophesied about. They instantly question who he is. And then Jesus knows what's going on in their hearts because Jesus knows what's going on in everybody's hearts. But you've got to remember, this is his hometown of Nazareth. And he says, I know what you're thinking. Doubtless you'll quote to me this proverb, physician, heal yourself. What you've heard, what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here now in our hometown right now. Which means, prove it. Aren't you just Joseph's son? Then do something spectacular, you know? Fly a little bit or something, you know? Whatever your little miracle would be. Do something that proves it to us. It's the exact same thing that Satan did to him before. And Jesus knows that he's not going to convince them. Remember, he's not a political candidate appealing to neutral people. He didn't come to try to convince them to follow him. What he does do, though, is dramatic. Right after that, he tells them two stories about Elijah and Elisha, two of the greatest prophets of Israel. They would have owned these people in terms of their identity. Oh, Elijah and Elisha, we love them, they're the best. So they're heroes for the Israelites. And in each story, he gives an example of when God sent these two great prophets of theirs to Gentiles, to deliver the Gentiles as opposed to Israel. And this infuriates them. They did not miss his point. It makes them so mad, that his audience, because Jesus is clarifying in these stories what he actually means by poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. He's getting very clear. He's highlighting God's grace for people in those categories, Gentiles. And it confronts the Jews in two major ways. First, Jesus is saying that his plan for deliverance is way bigger than their idea of deliverance. His plan is far bigger than just you, Israel, he's saying. And it's far bigger than your national political situation. He's saying that God is about saving the world. That's why I've come. I've come for people outside of Israel, too. And that would upset them very much. This alone would offend them a lot because the Messiah was supposed to come and save them. Their identity was strong in the fact that they were God's chosen people, right? They felt special. They had specialness in that. And Jesus is sitting here and saying, no more specialness. That's not the point of why I chose you. You were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. That's what he said to Abraham, that Israel's supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And so he's taking away their specialness on one level, and that makes them mad. And then second, he is saying to them that they are just as bad as the Gentiles. Their problem goes far deeper than any external dilemma that they find themselves in. God is about saving the outcast, saving the unclean, saving the rejected, which is exactly how they would have seen the Gentiles. They are the worst in their minds. You know, they're like Ravens fans. They're the worst. Uh, so neither of my, t- none of my team is not in the Super Bowl tonight, so I just got to, I still got to dump on the Ravens. Either way. Um, uh, but this is what they viewed them as. You know, the Gentiles are the bottom of the pit. And Jesus is saying, this is exactly who I've come for. 
and you're just like them. So he's being very clear what it means to be poor, captive, blind, and oppressed. He came to save people who were trapped in their sin. And as we said, this drives them all mad. They are so offended that they instantly want to kill Jesus, and they try to kill Jesus right then and there. And by doing that, they prove what he is saying. They prove what he's saying. You're not neutral people. You are angry at the notion of grace. You want to kill me for saying this. They are that far gone. They're not pretty good people who just need a little help, a little extra help to stay straight and get free. They have fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He doesn't argue with them. He doesn't try to convince them about who he is. He just goes about proclaiming what he is doing. That's the language in Isaiah. I've come to proclaim these things. I'm going to do this, whether you like it or not. He just does it to them. Remember, no one stands with Jesus at his trial. We want to, you know, dump on the people from Nazareth and be like, look at those jerks, they all rejected Jesus. But we've got to remember that nobody stands with Jesus in the end. No one defends him. Everybody abandons him, even his best friends. Jesus ends up with no honor in anybody's mind when he's hanging there, cursed on the cross. This whole earth is his. He made it. He is the God of the universe. And so this is his hometown, if you will. The whole earth. And he knows that he has no honor in his hometown. He knows he's going to be rejected. That's why he's come. He did not come to convince neutral people that he was God, that he was their savior, that they might choose him as their savior. He came to save them. That's our Lord. He came to set the captives free, to get us out of bondage, to forgive us of our sins, to deliver us. This is what freedom really is. It's being rescued by Jesus, by God himself. We're not neutral. We would have all had the same reaction to Jesus telling us that we were that bad. In fact, we probably already have on some way, in some way, shape, or form, you know? You've probably been in denial about sin in your life somewhere, maybe. I know I have. You know, I'm just going out on a limb there, saying that you guys might have felt that. But, um, you know, if you're like me, then you've defended yourself against the idea that you need that much grace all of the time. You convince yourself you're pretty good. You're staying on the right path. You just need a little help to keep making good choices. But Jesus won't let you stay there. He loves you too much. It's something I heard Ted Roberts recently say. He's a pastor from Oregon, and he's the founder of Pure Desire Ministries. And uh, he says, when Jesus says he'll never leave you alone, it's not just a comforting word saying, I'm always going to be with you. It's him promising you that he's never going to leave you alone. He's going to keep on messing with your life. I'm never going to leave you alone because he loves you that much. He's going to keep putting his finger on areas in our lives where we're still trying to be independent, when we're still trying to uh, keep up the illusion of our neutrality. He has come after us to save us from that illusion because there's only one end to that road, and it's death. Jesus has come to set us free. 
That's the answer to our question. What is freedom? Freedom is complete dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ. It is finally resting in his completed work for you in each and every area of your life. And that's a lifelong experience where he keeps showing us new areas, a new area where he actually is already there, where he's already forgiven you, where he has already saved you there, but you just don't realize it yet. You're still defending it, being like, you know, that's not that bad, Lord. You can save me over here, but I'm just going to keep this one. I'm going to keep working on this. Don't worry about it. It's fine. It's fine. And you say, you know, look away. And Jesus is like, no, I want you to see me there. I want you to feel my forgiveness and salvation there. And so he keeps on doing that. That's our life. That's sanctification. That is what it means to be a Christian. It means coming to grips again and again with his completed work for you. This is the year of the Lord's favor. The Lord's favor for you, for me. Jesus isn't convincing you of it. He is proclaiming it to you. He has made sure that you have it by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. That's incredible news. He wants you to know it in every area of your life. It is new life. It is freedom, and he's giving it to you right now. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. We thank you that you came and proclaimed the year of the Lord's favor for us, that you came to fulfill God's promises for us, that you saved us, Lord, from ourselves. Lord, we pray that you would uh, continue to show us the areas in our lives where we're trying to do it on our own, where we're trying to be independent, where we're trying to be neutral, that you would show us that those are places you died for, that you were already there, that you love us, that we are forgiven and safe there. We pray, Jesus, that you would keep that firmly fixed in our hearts and our minds as we go out from this place. And we pray that you would use us to be messengers of that awesome news to the hurting world around us that you came to save the sick, to heal the hurting, to raise the dead. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.